So if you'd open church to John 18, John chapter 18, providential how the Lord had us read just a moment ago the same passage, or the same event in a different passage rather, and what we'll be reading here in John chapter 18, we'll start in verse 33, read through 38. This is the Word of God. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the King of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and your chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you're a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And Father, this truth that comes from Your voice You tell us, Holy Spirit, that You are the Teacher, the Helper, the One that comes to illuminate and to give understanding of truth. And so Lord, we want Your truth today, the the truth that Christ was sent into the world to proclaim. And that's all we want. And we want that truth to so impact us that it changes us and it causes us to worship You and to live for Your glory. And so, Father, we ask that You would do these things for Your name's sake. Amen. As we get back into uh, John 18, uh, we're Friday morning in this passion narrative. It's a very sobering, sobering moment. This is the morning of the afternoon that Jesus would be crucified. And... At this point in the narrative, Jesus is, is beginning to uh, encounter, it's, it's actually the fourth of six trials is what we will study today. Uh, you remember we, we looked at last week three Jewish trials that Jesus went through with Annas and Caiaphas and then the Sanhedrin. And after these three trials, they, they said, we, we don't want to kill this man. We don't want his blood on our hands. We want the Roman government to kill Jesus. And so they wait for mourning. At about 6 a.m., the Roman courts open, those civic courts, and they hand Jesus over to Pilate. And this is what we'll study today, uh, looking at Pilate. After Pilate, we know there's a next trial, would be the fifth trial, that's Herod. And then Herod washes his hands of Jesus and sends him back to Pilate. And that's the six trials that Christ goes through. We'll be in the fourth one uh, this morning. Here's what caught me uh, studying this. Early in the week, really Monday is when this landed on me pretty heavily when I was reading over this passage, 
I just felt like we need to see humor. Inappropriate humor uh, in this text. And so if there is a title to this sermon, it would be The Foolish and Inappropriate Humor of Pilate. And Ecclesiastes 7 calls this the laughter of the fools. That's what Pilate is really the prototypical fool uh, laughing in the face of Christ. And, um, and so if anybody in, the, uh, in history has ever given an inappropriate joke, it's Pilate. And it's right here in this, in this text. And so I'm not going to order my sermon in these three points, but for the sake of those of you who like some sort of order and how you hear something, I'll just put out here, this is kind of how I'm going to work through this. I want to first exposit the passage and look at what Jesus and Pilate are talking about. And, and then I want to bring an implication. So exposition, implications from that exposition is how this affects the church and the world dynamic. How might the world look like Pilate and us like Christ? in how they mock us. And then from that, the application. What place does humor actually have? What is appropriate and inappropriate humor? And what does the Bible have to say about it? So that's kind of how we'll, we'll work through this. I'm sure many of us have not heard a sermon on humor. Uh, this will be the first and maybe the only one you ever hear. Um, I don't think, I probably should say this also, I, I don't think humor is the main point of this passage. I'll admit that. I don't think that is the main thing here. I think the main thing to see is the purity of Christ's heart and His resolve for truth and to establish His kingdom. And humor is, is the background. It's the black background in which that light of Christ, that beauty and glory of Christ is shining forth. The black backdrop of that that really highlights the glory of Christ is the the sick and inappropriate humor of Pilate. Um, and, and so that's why I want to look at it from this angle. Um, if, if this church was mainly those in their 60s, 70s, 80s, I probably wouldn't preach this sermon. The fact that this church is largely a younger demographic, I, I'm preaching this sermon. Um, I, I think that there's a purpose for that. Um, I, I posted a... I'll start unpacking what I mean by that by uh, referencing the article I posted in GroupMe this week. I don't know if some of you all saw that. It, it was called The God of Fun. And um, let me just read one little portion from that. Fun is seemingly the unquestioned, undisputed right of children. Learning at school must be fun. Curricula uh, must be, is judged on how fun they make the learning process. School vacations must be fun and the veritable industry of vacation activities and entertainment now exists for this purpose. Sports must be fun, and it's the supposed inherent fun of beating others at games, I suppose, that make central sports in our culture. Eating breakfast must be fun with fun pictures on the box, toys inside, and fun sugary food to boot. Observe the mountain of toys in the average Western child's bedroom. What he or she needs most is fun. And mom and dad will buy it. Brushing our teeth must be done with a fun-shaped toothbrush and fun-tasting toothpaste. Bathing must include toys so that it'll be fun in the act of cleaning oneself. Pajamas must have fun pictures on them, so, so must the blankets. And at the top of the fun list is television and a console of games. 
television producers and game developers have mastered are masters at creating an appetite for fun. Can a child even live without a steady diet of TV and games for fun? Perhaps I'm not exaggerating when I say that our culture regards fun as the greatest good when it comes to children. Fun is the supreme goal for children. End quote. If that is how a generation has been raised, what place does humor fit in? Comedy fit in to this. The, uh, the millennial generation, those born from uh, 1981 to 1995, that's the millennials. Uh, how many have been raised on kind of this, the irony and cynicism and sarcasm of, of, of David Letterman and Seinfeld, um, shows like The Simpsons and Family Guy and King of the Hill. These are shows that I remember when I was young. Uh, the comedians like Adam Sandler, Jim Carrey, Will Ferrell, all these movies, I could name a bunch of stand-up comedians. How much have these men influenced a generation more so than the Apostle Paul, David, Moses, Peter, the Apostle John? I mean, it's, it's not even questionable which one has influenced the generation more. These comedians, uh, by far, have, have influenced uh, the millennial generation more. One popular article I read said this, as my generation came of age, we didn't really rebel. We just viewed the world around us with contempt. Grudge, grunge was my generation's response to a culture's emotionless, inorganic plasticity. We, that is those in their 20s and through 40s, fought our generational battles by openly mocking the idols of authority. We exposed the 80s illusions with a sense of detached irony and came to hold sentimentally, sentimentally and earnestness with skepticism. Over time, the irony that set my generation free became its own prison. And listen to this next sentence. The biggest problem for millennials is that we don't know what to do with forthright, heartfelt passion. Like Christ speaking truth. And then, and then it concludes like this. We felt powerless and the only weapon we had to see the world was to make it a huge joke. Uh, a few years ago, I actually stopped reading the comments section on social media because it seemed like amateur comedy hour. Every person, probably millennials, trying to say something more witty and funny than the other person. And that's how we communicate in our culture. And I'm not here to pick on the culture so much as to speak to the church and how this might affect us. Um, because I said last week, and I want to apply this to every area, um, that our tradition as a, as a church, in, in our historic Reformed Baptist tradition especially, is to critique every tradition, even cultural traditions, and subject them to Christ and to the Word of God. And I want to do that uh, with this issue as well. You know, it, I don't get much pushback in our church when I, when I critique uh, secular ideologies. I know that takes a lot of boldness in some churches, but when I do that here, everybody seems cool with it. You know, 
Let's talk about pragmatism and postmodernism and relativism and expressive individualism and hedonism and emotionalism. And we talked about last week traditionalism. Everybody's fine with that. What about sarcasm? What about cynicism? Can we talk about that? Do we get to talk about those things as well? What, what Solomon calls the laughter of the fools? Can I speak into what this article on Millennials said? We felt powerless and the only weapon we had was to see the world as a huge joke. Can I speak into that? And I look, I know this is like one of those, maybe you already feel it, it's like one of those sacred cows in American evangelicalism. There's a few of them. It's like, you better not preach, Pastor, about college football in the South especially. Better not talk about overeating. And you better not talk about inappropriate humor. You shouldn't do that. You know, um, we want a nice church service and then a gluttonous lunch after. We want to sing even apathetically and then go home after that gluttonous lunch and cheer with passion for our football team. We want solid, doctrinal, accurate sermons, and then we want to later that night or that next week be able to watch inappropriate comedies. And I know I'm not even doing this the way you're supposed to do a sermon like this, because what you're supposed to do is sprinkle a lot of humor as you're attacking humor, right? So I should be telling tons of jokes in between my condemning of jokes, and it's a masterful rhetorical skill, those who have the ability to do that. The problem is I'm not good at telling jokes, and, and so I can't do that, and I don't want to steal other men's jokes, and so I run the risk of someone leaving thinking he's just some fundamentalist dinosaur, you know, who doesn't like to have fun, and, you know, if you have that view of me, I don't think any of my jokes are going to rid me of that label. Uh, I'll stick with just trying to preach the Bible. Jesus in this passage is very concerned for truth. Look at verse 34. He, he had this little phrase. We're actually going to come back to this next week. But verse 37, he says, Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And so everybody is of some sort of truth, right? We're all being governed and shaped by truth. The question is, is it Jesus' truth or is it the world's truth? Is it the culture's agenda or is it Christ's agenda? And we know Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what's acceptable and perfect. And that includes humor. Truth should inform what humor we do and don't partake in. And so... As I was looking at this passage this week, the first thing I did is what every preacher should do is read the text. Um, I read the text, and then I reread the text, then I reread it a few more times, and then I read it out loud. And when I read it out loud, it opened up. How did this sound, is what I was thinking. What's the body language? What's the tone of voice between Pilate and Jesus here? How significant is that? Because what if it read like this? Look at verse 33. Pilate called Jesus and said to him, 
Are you the king of the Jews? With this earnest, like, I've been, I've been looking for the king of the Jews so I could bow to him and worship him. Is that how he's asking this question, this honest seeker? Or, or verse 35, Pilate later, later said, Am I a Jew? I don't know. Is it ignorance? Is he just asking? I don't know if I'm a Jew. Can you tell me, Jesus, if you're the king of the Jews? What about verse 37? Pilate said to him, So, you're a king? You're a king? Is that how he says it? The genuine wonder and amazement that a king is standing before him? Or verse 38? What is truth? I've been, I've been living my whole life seeking truth. You were... You came from heaven to speak truth? What is truth? Is that how Pilate's speaking to Christ? It's genuine hunger? Like he's a real seeker? I, I'm, I don't know how you could read this and think that. I didn't read any commentators who thought that. It's not what's happening. That's why nobody thinks that. I don't think Pilate's on the edge of his seat going, please, you're a king. I want to worship you. What is all this stuff true? I'm hearing. I think if we could see his body language, if we could hear his tone of voice, we would see what's really going on here. And and I point out both those things: body language and tone of voice, because we know many times we communicate not with what just we say, but, but how we say something. Right? All of us who are married know this. If you're newlywed, you got to learn this one quick. Right, you can say the same thing two different ways, a gentle or a harsh way, and it lands very different depending on if it's gentle or harsh. Same words. Right? We tell our kids, we want our kids to honor us. Say yes sir, yes ma'am or something. Well, there's a right way to say, an honoring way to say yes ma'am or yes sir, and there's a stomp your feet, roll your eyes, walk away, yes sir. You know, that's not honoring. But you're saying the words, right? Tone of voice matters. We know these, this communication isn't always just what you say, but how you say it. Um, this is why it's really hard with text messaging. We do a lot of communication now with text messaging. And as a pastor, I, I learned this pretty quick in ministry. Um, that's a dangerous thing because you can write something and your heart is pure and you mean something good and then someone reads it and they see something very different. And so anytime I have an important message that I'm sending someone, I'll try to call them or leave like a voice message thing where they can at least hear my tone if I can't have an in-person meeting with them. Because I want someone to hear. He cares. This is genuine. This isn't some mean kind of angry thing going on here. And tone of voice often communicates that. All the commentators regarding Pilate here use words like contempt, arrogance, cynicism, sarcasm, mockery, and so let me read it again with a more accurate tone. Verse 33, Pilate said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Emphasis, you. You. The one standing, really. And then Jesus, I think, I think we see, not only through that word you, that he means this sarcastically, but verse 34 makes it clear do you say this of your own accord, Jesus says, or do others say it to you about me? Jesus knows he's not serious. A seeker. Verse 35, Pilate said, Am I a Jew? I mean, you just hear, it's so evident there's sarcasm behind that. 
Verse 37, Pilate said to him, So you're a king. You're a king. You. The, the pitiful one chained up in front of me. It's, it's dripping with sarcasm. And all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, mention Jesus' response, you have said so. Jesus knows He's not being serious. He's answering a fool according to His folly. Verse 38, what is truth? That's dripping with a, a cynicism. A, a postmodern, biting type of cynicism. It's not a question, it's a statement. And look, jump forward to chapter 19. Look at verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him with a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They struck him with their hands. Pilate went out and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in Him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said, Behold the man! Is that honoring Christ or mocking Him? He's mocking Him. And He emboldened all the soldiers around Him because Matthew 27, 27 says the soldiers of the governor, that is those standing, listening to Pilate mock Jesus, took Jesus into the governor's headquarters. They gathered the whole battalion, that's 450 to 600 soldiers, are now standing with Jesus, having just watched Pilate uh, mock him. And it says they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spit on him, took reeds and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his robe and put on his clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. So Matthew 27 says 400, about 450 to 600 soldiers, Roman soldiers, mock Jesus. Mark 15 says the whole battalion mocked him. Luke 23 says, Herod, even King Herod with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. And in John 18, we see this initial mockery and bullying, you could even call it, from Pilate. Uh, Pilate is no honest seeker. He wants to be a comedian more than he wants to be a judge. And you go, well, it doesn't really sound that funny. Good. It's not, it's not funny. Pilate thinks he's hilarious. He, he thinks he's hilarious. He, all this is dripping with sarcasm and cynicism. Uh, the Roman soldiers think they're funny. Saluting Jesus, it says. They're saluting Him. They're bowing before Him. They're spitting on Him and mocking Him. They think they're hilarious. And we can hear the echoing vulgarity in their language, as Christ, innocent, stands before him with a rated R vulgarity in the room. And Jesus stands silent. I think the Apostle John is highlighting the wickedness of Pilate and Herod and these Roman soldiers because Look, it's, it's one thing to kill Christ. 
It's another thing to kill Christ while you're laughing about it. It's one thing to betray Jesus like Judas. It's another thing to betray Him with a kiss. There's something more sadistic about that, right? You, you see a criminal arrested for a violent, evil crime. It's, it's bad to see that guy sitting in court. It's another thing to see him smiling. That's, an, that's another level of evil. And John is highlighting that. He could have, Jesus could have responded with some little witty comment to make Pilate look stupid. And he doesn't. He doesn't. He is patient in his response. I think that the patience of Christ's response to Pilate's mockery actually wore Pilate down to the point where Pilate was softened. Because we see at the very beginning that he's mocking Jesus with jokes. But the last trial where Jesus stands before Pilate again, it says he's fearful. We know his wife told him a dream about this man and, he, and then he wants nothing to do with it and he washes his hands. I think the response of Jesus to the mockery affected Pilate profoundly. And he began to even think, this man is innocent and maybe he's more than a man. His heart is so pure as he's being mocked. He doesn't return insult for insult, joke for joke. He's not insecure like others who got to protect themselves by getting a joke and giving one back. And that's what you do, right? It's a survival mechanism. Jesus doesn't have to do that. This is the same heart of the man who a few hours later will be hanging on the cross People are doing what to Him? Worshiping Him? Singing praises to Him as He's on the cross? No. They're mocking Him. They're, they're laughing at Him. And He says what? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. What a heart. Have you ever seen a more pure and merciful heart than this? Answer, you have not. You have not. This is your example on how you endure mockery at work. This is how you handle jokes at your own expense. This is how children, if you're bullied, somebody says mean things to you, this is how you endure that. You look closely at what Christ did. He didn't return insult for insult. He responded with a sincerity, actually. That's what I really think Jesus is doing. He has a sincerity to the way He answers this. And our generation doesn't know what to do, nor did this generation know what to do, with sincerity. That's what that article just said. The biggest problem for the millennials is that they don't know what to do with forthright heartfelt passion. And so they feel powerless, and the only weapon they can use is to turn life into a joke. Remember? That's what Pilate's doing until Christ and His patience wears Him down. And brothers and sisters, the world doesn't know what to do with a sincere Christian. And so you know what they'll do with you if you're a sincere Christian? You take a stand on a moral issue? <clears throat> well, they're going to make a joke. 
They may not put you in jail and strike you on the face or physically harm you, but they will mock you. They will mock you. That's what they did to the uh, first disciples, the first church at Pentecost. Remember the Spirit falls? Acts 2, the Spirit falls upon them. They start speaking in tongues, these unknown languages. Everybody's hearing the Word of God proclaimed in unknown and in their own language. And then it says the people heard them and said, are you drunk? And then Peter, kind of wittingly, uh, witty, says, uh, it's nine o'clock in the morning. I'm not drunk. And then he sincerely preaches the Gospel to them. You know, I understand and I don't want to, I don't want this to land on us as if I'm trying to in any way beat us up. I'm a, I'm a product of this culture too. Uh, I grew up in high, in high school especially as a, as a young guy in a public high school. You survive through sarcasm. That's how you get through. You make friends that way. You keep friends that way. You, you don't get beat up by everybody by being sarcastic. That's how it works. And so I, I get this. But listen, and so, and I know that many times we'll even say, well, I'm like this because it's all in love, you know, these are my friends. But listen to Proverbs 26, verse 18. It says, like a madman who throws firebrands and arrows, death is the one who deceives his neighbor and says, I'm only joking. So ask, does the joke build up or tear down? That's the question. Does it build up or tear down? And the reason why I I mentioned the word tear down is the etymology of the word sarcasm. So, the word sarcasm comes from a Greek word, sarcomos, a sneer, a jest, a taunt, a mockery. It's it's from sarcophagus, is actually the root word, uh, sarx in, in Greek and Latin. It means of the flesh. And the sarcophagus part of it is that the flesh of a body would be put into a, a tomb, a, a little casket, and the flesh would rot off and you would have nothing but the bones left. The tearing off of the flesh, sarcophagus. Sarcastic. To tear off the flesh. That's what the word means. And so... Pilate is eating up the flesh of Christ before the physical suffering comes with his words. And let me make a distinction here because if we don't don't distinguish this at least a little bit, it may be confusing. There is a difference between satire and sarcasm. Okay, these are not the same thing. Um, One author said, sarcasm is the use of irony, saying one thing while meaning another. The other rhetorical devices... Uh, or in a biting, hurtful way. There is a difference between irony, sarcasm, and satire, although they are related. So he defines them. Irony can be a pain, can be painful because the truth, re- what the truth reveals, is convicting. So the Bible often uses irony. The Gospel of John uses irony a lot. Satire uses irony, but gently prompts for needed change. This can be appropriate on occasion, and there's many biblical examples of satire. Sarcasm, on the other hand, and I'm still quoting this author, is not appropriate. Sarcasm has at its core an intent to insult or to be hurtful with the correspond, without the corresponding love or wish for well-being. The goal of sarcasm is to belittle the victim. 
So, I don't think the argument, well, they can take it, they're thick-skinned, or they, they, they're laughing, it's fine. I, that's not really what I'm concerned about. That may be true. The question as a believer that we're always asking is, what type of speech honors Christ? That's, what, that's all we're worried about. Not how do, how do they handle it. Well, it doesn't really affect them, so it's fine. No. Does, does my speech honor the Lord? Ephesians 5 4 says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. And, you know, I've seen, I've seen men in, in different circles over the years who, in their 50s and 60s, really discrediting themselves on the basis of humor. And I, I, I'll just give, I heard a pastor I, I highly respect, and he. Um, well, it was Paul Washer, and he was talking about uh, a set of um, churches he went to, and they were trying to assess some elders. And they were looking at a particular man as an elder candidate. And they thought, man, this guy, he, he's gifted at preaching, he seems to be godly, his home and all these different things, everything looks great. But then they start spending a lot of time with him, and it was so much joking that they said he lost all his respectability and disqualified himself. Over the issue of humor. You know, it, it's just, you can do too much of it. And, and some, you know, maybe people have been mistaught on this because I read a bunch of articles where people are trying to stretch this as far as you can. Oh, the Bible's full of humor. I don't know what they're reading. I mean, you read these articles and you begin to see the examples they give of how much humor is in the Bible. They're really stretching a lot of these. Like, you really think that's funny? Like that's, I don't know, I don't think that's even a joke. Um, so when you look at the Bible, you do see humor, and you see Proverbs that say laughter is good medicine, right? So that's a positive one. But then you see things like Ecclesiastes 7.3. Sorrow is better than laughter. Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. So, so Solomon's saying, to put this in our context, it's better to cry sometimes if you want to make it to joy. That's what we want to get to, joy. It's better to cry to get to joy rather than to watch a dirty comedy. You're not going to get to joy watching some inappropriate comedy. You're going to get there maybe through tears. That's a better chance. Ecclesiastes 7.6 says, For the cracking of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. And so this foolish laughter again is ultimately displayed in Pilate laughing at Jesus. There's nothing to laugh at regarding Christ, especially in this moment. He is standing before the Lord of glory. The One who made all things. The Lord of heaven and earth. He's standing before the, the Lord of tornadoes and hurricanes. The Lord of tribes and languages and every tongue. The Lord of sexes and genders. Emotions and personalities. Math and science. He is the Lord of the Greeks and the Romans. The Jews and the Gentiles. The Christians and the non-Christians. He's Lord of Herod and He's Lord of Pilate. And Pilate is laughing in the face of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. That's what foolishness is. 
And here's our Christian response to this. It is, or let me say what it's not. It's not, therefore, don't laugh. Right? Don't have fun. That's not our response at all. Uh, the Christian response is to create a community where true, unadulterated laughter, childlike laughter, it, it is a normal experience in our families, in our home, in our communities. Laughter is God's idea. In fact, Psalms 2 and 2 Timothy 1.11 both say that God laughs. And for different reasons there, if you study those passages, but God is laughing. And He sent His Son to establish a kingdom where happiness and joy and laughter are the dominant emotion. And sorrow and sadness and tears are no more. And so when you're thinking about humor, think, does this belong in the kingdom of Christ or not? Does this humor belong in the kingdom of Christ? And I want to end on one passage in John. If you'll go back to John chapter 2, I think this is where we need to land, land the plane here. In John chapter 2, we see something really significant. We see Jesus' first miracle. And what is that miracle? Well, before we ask what the miracle is, where is the miracle? It's at Canaan, at a wedding feast. A wedding. What do you do at a wedding? I don't know what y'all do. I love weddings. I love rejoicing with the new bride and groom. That's a celebratory thing. It's an awesome thing. A new family unit. Picture of Christ in the church. I mean, this is a glorious thing. Christ does His first miracle and then increases joy by doing what? By doing what? Turning water to wine. That's odd. That's an odd first miracle. And he didn't make it into grape juice. It's fermented wine. And, and then John at the end of this says that he did this to manifest his glory. How does turning water into wine, 700 bottles of wine, 150 gallon, gallons of wine, how does that display the glory of Christ? Here, here's what G.K. Chesterton said about this miracle. He said, if anything, this is to show Jesus' mirth, meaning His sense of humor. Because who brings 700 bottles of wine to a party? That's a strange miracle. He's not raising someone from the dead right here, or walking on water, or feeding 5,000. He's multiplying 150 gallons of water and making them 150 gallons of wine. The good wine, it says. And again, I, I'm not even going to get, we're not getting into the argument of alcohol and all these things. We know Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk with wine, right? But we, we need to get the scriptural significance of the wine. It's, because it's not so much about the wine, it's what the wine represents. And in scripture, wine represents gladness of heart. 
laughter, joy, and celebration. Things that we'll experience where? In the kingdom. Remember when Christ inaugurates the Lord's table and He says, drink this, and we'll drink it again in the kingdom. The, the wine is pointing us to the kingdom. It's pointing us to joy and laughter and celebration in the kingdom. First, uh, uh, um, Psalms 104.15 says, God makes wine to gladden the heart of man. Ecclesiastes 10.19 A feast is made for laughter and wine makes merry. And it's not about the wine. It's about what the wine represents. Joy, laughter, celebration in the kingdom. And so, guys, as, as we come to the table, drink from the fruit of the vine. Think about what this is pointing to. We cannot be a church full of somber people. We can't. It misrepresents the Gospel. We've got to be a happy people. We've got to be a joyous, celebratory people. You know, Kent, I'm actually, I'm going to lead us, brother. I don't know where you are. I'm going to actually just lead us to the table because I want to say this before we come to the table and take this today. Um, it's a serious thing to come to the table and no way does joy and celebration detract from the seriousness and the weight of this table. We should never put joy in celebrating what Christ has done against coming in a serious way to the table. We're not talking about flippancy. We're talking about real joy, knowing what Christ has done for us, knowing what this represents and what it's pointing to. So as you prepare your hearts, church, think about the true joy, the true laughter, the unadulterated, pure versions of all these things that the world distorts and perverts. Think about the purity of this table and what Christ has accomplished. And let me just let me end this on this. Jesus said, For the joy set before him, he endured the shame. He endured the shame of mockery. He was that person being made fun of as he's going to the cross to lay down His life for the joy set before Him so we could enter into that joy with Him. Keep these things on your minds as you come to the table. Father, we praise You, Lord, that You are not a killjoy. You did Your first miracle at a wedding turning water to wine. You celebrate. You are building a kingdom where sorrow will be no more. Where death will be no more. Where crying and pain will be no more. Where joy will fill us in true laughter. Pure laughter. And Lord, we pray that this church even be a small picture of that kingdom that You're building on this earth. And so God, would You would You help us with these things? We've built bad habits. Our minds have been affected by the culture too much. And it robs us of true joy. And it misrepresents what Your kingdom is really about. And so Lord, would You give us wisdom today? Would You help us with these things? And would You forgive us wherever we've failed? 
And Lord, as we come to this table, Lord, give us joy. Put rejoicing in our hearts. We give You the praise for all of these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.